Welcome, everyone, to the Green Majority Podcast. Really awesome discussion about the TPP today. We had some good guests, and there was a hell of a discussion at the end, and the bonus show is wicked, so definitely make it all the way to the end of the program today. Just another reminder, if you can and are willing and able to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash greenmajority. Other than that, enjoy the show. listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm you could be listening live or possibly on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners all the way across the country as well now into the united states some of our international listeners or local listeners as well who are listening on the podcast all appreciated equally totally equally loved so we're going to be talking about a couple of things today here on the program i'm sitting in studio currently with ma ma and brenna owen uh we're going to be talking largely today about the tpp this of course uh is a very timely issue because uh we are about to get stuck with it if we don't hurry up and do something now why would you say do something a trade deal is super innocuous well we're hopefully going to find out some of the very specific and very carefully thought out reasons why you might want to have a second look if you're not uh, if you're not concerned about the TPP and we're going to don't listen to us on this you don't have to take our expertise we're going to be hearing from Gus Van Harten who's the associate professor uh, at Osgood Hall Law School as well as the author of Investment Treaty Arbitration and Public Law there are some very specific reasons why we think that you should learn a little bit more about the TPP and uh, I'm concerned we're going to find out more about why Gus has some reservations with the help of M.A. and Brenna a little bit later. But before we get to that, I also have another guest on the phone who will be joining us in just a moment. Her name is Lauren Brown, and she is the Education and Outreach Coordinator for LEAF, which is the Local Enhancement and Appreciation of Forests. Before we just get to that, and I'll just uh, wait until my technician lets me know that uh, Lauren is on the phone as well uh, that we got a whole bunch of email this week, and I'm going to be uh, responding to it this uh, a little bit later uh, in the show as well. But this week it was mostly fan mail, so you're not going to hear Stefan and I doing a, a rant this week. However, it appears to be popular. Um, I was sort of skeptical, but uh, we actually got quite a lot of comments about our last couple of episodes that people really enjoyed. So, uh, And I, I personally enjoy tearing down nonsense, but uh, I wasn't sure if other people wanted to hear me do it. But apparently they do. So we'll be doing more of that in a second. And I'm just waiting. Do we have uh, Do we have Lauren online? Not yet. Oh, that's all right. So um, in the meantime, while we're just waiting to get Lauren online, Emmy, do you want to um, give me a little bit more background about what we're going to be talking about with Gus uh, a little bit later in the program? Yeah, so we're really looking forward to this section. We're going to talk a little bit about the implications of what's happening with the TPP and how it really has potential impact in the Canadian setting. This is a huge multilateral trade agreement that's on the table. And there are maybe some specific uh, implications that as Canadians, we need to be concerned about, we at least need to have some knowledge. There's been a number of surveys done that show that Canadians really aren't aware of what the TPP is or what it contains. All right. So perfect timing. Thank you very much for that. I mean, we'll get back to that shortly just after the first break. But now I believe I have Lauren on the phone. Lauren, are you there? 
Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so just a little bit because uh, before we get to why we've invited you on the program today, because you have some cool programs coming out that we thought people would like to know about, um, I want to know a little bit about you and your background. So just in case people haven't heard of LEAF uh, before, do you want to just sort of explain uh, who you are, what LEAF is, and, and how you came to, to work with them? Yeah, for sure. So LEAF, it stands for Local Enhancement and Appreciation of Forests. And we're a nonprofit organization dedicated to the, impre- the protection and improvement of our urban forest. And we do that through a variety of programs that we have, such as our backyard tree planting program. Um, we have tree tours, workshops, presentations. And I'm going to be talking about a new program that we have coming up today on the show. Um, but actually, how I got involved with SLEAF, I actually started out as a volunteer. Um, I took the Forest Conservation Science Program at U of T, and at my time as a student there, I was just looking to get some more hands-on experience in the field and thought, you know, LEAF was the perfect place to go, seeing as I grew up in the city and, you know, my love of nature, uh, I could get that through through LEAF. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, I yeah, spent some I've, time I've, volunteering there. Yep. Uh, no, I was going to say, I've actually, I, when I was in university, I lived in a co-op house. One of the first times I, I met some of your volunteers was when they showed up in a truck to come inspect the trees in our house. So it was really fun. <laughs> sort of very, very hands-on. Yeah, really. There were volunteers coming to check out your trees? Uh, it was somebody, yeah, somebody with leaf t-shirts. Either that or they, they found a really good scam to get into our backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were following up on like the backyard tree planting program or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I got involved that way, and a position ended up opening up, and um, basically I handed in my last paper at U of T, and then I started working um, right away um, with LEAF. And then I did take a break, and I've been back for almost a year now, just under a year, yes, in a similar role that I had previously, so in education and outreach. Great. So uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about some of these, uh, some of the general programming that you do and then some of the the programming that you're just launching? Yeah. So um, like our backyard tree planting program is something we have in the fall and spring where we have one of our arborists would come, you know, give you a consultation in your backyard. This would be for homeowners and we help you select the best tree species and where the best spot um, it could go in your backyard. So we do plant um, only native species because, um, you know, they're, they've evolved to thrive in our conditions we have um, here in its native environment. So <clears throat> that's one of the focuses of that program and, and everything we do is planting native. And uh, on my side with LEAF, I'm involved with most of the educational components. So we believe that Educating people about the benefits of trees and how to care for them is re- really going to help improve our urban forest through that education. So um, we have things like tree tours. So that's a walk through a neighborhood and it's led by an expert and you might you know, do some tree ID and learn about some of the stresses and along that walk that the, the trees have in our city. Um, but one of, one of the new programs that we have coming up and what I'm on here today to talk about is our Young Urban Forest Leaders Program. Um, so 
It's specifically designed to provide young women um, from ages 18 to 24 with hands-on experience in the field of urban forest and, and also community engagement. So uh, there is research published in the Journal of Arboriculture that there's a low representation of women in the industry, so it's approximately 10%. So we're hoping, like, through this program, we can play our part in trying to increase that number. That, that does, Lauren, that seems shockingly low. Do you have any reason why that might be? Um, I see it like, you know, this also includes all of our tree care service field. So that would be, you know, tree climbers and people who are doing work, actually, like physical work on trees. So I think in on that side of things, it is primarily dominated by men in the industry. Mm. Um, and you see a lot more females and more of like the out, community outreach. But um, I think that's where the number comes from. But I, I don't think it it's not taking into account people enrolled in programs in like universities and colleges, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. So how, uh, what sort of um, things are you uh, tr- looking to train these uh, mostly young women uh, in? This is uh, the education about the tree um, specifically, get the, getting sort of a, a gateway to get people interested in the field. What's the, what's the uh, deliverable at the end of this? Yeah, so there's sort of three different areas. They're going to receive hands-on skills in arboriculture, um, community organization, and public outreach. So the first thing that um, participants would do is partake in our tree tenders training program and that covers things ranging from tree biology um, to tree identification. They learn about Toronto tree bylaws that we have in the city, um, our threats and benefits to the urban forest. Um, They learn how to plant trees and, and mulching and everything with regards to tree care and maintenance. So that's sort of like the background for for trees and um, and the urban forest there. And then um, after that, participants will be broken up into teams and they're going to be working hands-on with a, a park group, so a community group that's involved with their local park. And the, the young women are going to be helping um, do a whole tree inventory of the park and, and assess sort of the health of the trees and help um, this community group develop and adopt a park tree program for their park. So <clears throat> it's working with the community that way. And ultimately, at the end of it's a, a six-month term that they'll be getting mentorship is to launch a tree tour and stewardship event at the end of that. Awesome. So that's largely going to be, that's something obviously that's available for the uh, people in uh, Toronto. Um, is there, are you aware of, can you help people link people up to other organizations or, or is there any resources you might direct people to if they're not in the Toronto area and they're, and they're interested in getting involved? Um, for this specific program, it is just funded. We have funding from the city of Toronto and the Toronto Rotary Club. So it's specific to residents in Toronto um, we do have our backyard tree planting program and our tree tenders training program in York Region, Ajax, um, and potentially this, this year, Mississauga. So we do branch out to those other areas for those existing programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, um, with the young urban forest leaders, it, it's just specific to Toronto. 
Okay. Uh, well, unfortunately, we were, we're running a little bit tight on time here. I have one final question for you, other than to simply mention that those, you know, those are some programs that uh, leave for running. I'm sure there are other organizations across the country. Uh, if you're interested in those types of things, I'm getting some, even some nods from inside the studio. That absolutely, <laughs> that absolutely is. So if you're in uh, Southern Ontario, perhaps reach out to Leaf, and, and they might be able to help you find a program. Yeah, we're taking applications uh, by March 20th, so that can be done online at our website, yourleaf.org. Sure. So just uh, really quickly here uh, as well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more. Um, we'd spoken before we, we actually got on the air a little bit about something a little bit more general, and you'd mentioned that there was some, some policy change that you were interested in. So we've, we've only got about two minutes left, but I, w- I yep. wanted to give you a chance to address that. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, where I, I can really see a, a change could make a big difference is in sort of like new development construction practices. So currently what what happens in new development areas, um, typically just outside or around the GTA, um, the top soil, so the top 12 inches that's taken thousands of years to develop, um, that's completely removed and stripped. And um, post-construction, uh, a minimal layer of soil is put back in place um, with a lot of fill just underneath. So we're losing a lot of that valuable soil in, in our, you know, new house area. So we lose a whole capacity of soil that we could plant trees in. And soil is the life for all plants and, and trees. And if you don't have actual space for soil, there's nowhere like roots can grow. And soil also, you know, prevents water runoff into our stormwater system and retains water and its habitat for a number of organisms. So um, I think if there was a change in place, I, I don't know exactly what it would look like, but, you know, something to help protect at least part of the, um, the soil from these areas that are being newly developed. All right. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we have for, but I want to thank you again. That was uh, We're speaking to Lauren Brown, who's the Education and Outreach Coordinator for LEAF, which is the Local Enhancement and Appreciation of Forests. Thank you so much for your time, Lauren. Thanks, Darren. Awesome. Bye. So we'll have links to the website there. If you are in the Toronto area or in the sort of southern Ontario as well and you want to find out about those programs, uh, especially if you're a young female that wants to get involved, they are actively seeking. Uh, they have programming specifically designed for you. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out. We'll have links on the website as well. Uh, but now we're going to go to Edward who's Hello. faithfully sitting in the, the tech room today, who's going to let us know what music we're going to listen to before we come back and speak to Gus Van Harten yeah. about the TPP. So, Edward, what are we going to play now? Um, we're going to listen to A Generous Man by Dante Mattis. Perfect time. Nice job, Edward, with the win. Nice fade-in. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're listening uh, live, possibly in the Toronto area, to the radio station. Could be listening on one of our wonderful partners, which as of recently is including Rabble. Thanks to Rabble for carrying us as well. The podcast is uh, viewable on there. Uh, The longest version, though, the only place to get the bonus content uh, as well as off our own podcast, off our website. So if you're hearing this somewhere else and you can't get enough, you're not sick of us just yet, uh, go to greenmajority.ca slash podcast. And uh, there is some additional bonus content on our own uh, podcast stream, which today is going to feature one of our volunteers, Sabina, who's uh, going to be walking us through so because we're dealing it was interesting actually like uh, sabina proposed this so we're walking through it about to be what is a somewhat complex topic uh something that sabina is not super familiar with so she is going to play play our layman in the bonus show and ask us a bunch of questions of things that uh you know sometimes when you're fairly familiar with something you're not it's not obvious what might not be obvious to other people so 
that should be really interesting. So if any of this goes over your head, definitely get the podcast because we're probably going to, Sabina's probably going to help you out after. But without further ado, I'm now going to pass it over to my co-host, M.A. Ma, who is going to introduce our guest. Yes, we're very pleased to have Gus Van Harten on the show today. He is an associate professor at Osgoode Law School and a leading expert in international investment law and arbitration, amongst other things. Gus, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Emma. Nice of you to have me. So, Gus, I'm just going to launch right in because there's been quite a lot of coverage of the TPP this week. Christia Freeland, our Minister of International Trade, signed the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement in New Zealand yesterday. And one thing that has been consistently messaged by the government is this this signing does not equate to ratification. So I want to ask you, what is the significance of our government signing the TPP? I assume we are now a party to the agreement. Are there any legal implications for us as a country? There would be very limited legal obligations in a sense, in essence, not to undermine the agreement. Uh, but the agreement can't enter into force until a certain number of the original signatories of the agreement have ratified it. So it's true that uh, there's still opportunity for. Canada to avoid being part of the TPP if the government decides uh, not to ratify it. Right, and I want to discuss that aspect a little bit further with you. So when we're talking about ratification or enshrining it in Canadian law through passing legislation, to what extent do countries have any leeway, so to speak, to customize um, their ratification to their own legal or constitutional framework? Is there an element of having some leeway, or is it basically a take-it-or-leave-it scenario? Uh, it's basically take-it-or-leave-it. Um, some multilateral conventions allow countries to place reservations to their um, joining of the convention, but the TPP really doesn't allow much scope for that. Um, so if uh, the, the really big decision will be whether or not Canada ratifies it. Once Canada ratifies it, assuming the U.S. ratifies it, it almost certainly will come and enter into force. And then it will be binding on Canada as a matter of international law. And passage of our own implementing legislation doesn't really affect that too much from an international point of view. We're still on the hook for the um, the liabilities that the TPP would carry if we didn't uh, follow the, uh, the obligations it puts on us. Right, and the public has raised a lot of concerns about this. Experts like yourself have raised concerns that we are signing on to a very stringent uh, trade regime and that the, one of the major concerns is that will it impede the ability of our government and other signatory governments to act in the public interest for fear of being sued. So, for example, to take policy action in the the areas of environmental protection or public health. And there's been a lot of commentary on the so-called ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism. I think they actually threw the word resolution in there for the TPP. Um, so can you comment on, you know, why, why raise the alarm um, in relation to the ISDS and other provisions that are contained in this particular trade agreement? Well, the ISDS... Uh, acronym is just like a nice way of describing uh, a radical change in international law that uh, was instituted, started to be instituted about 20, 25 years ago, and be has become you know, relatively widely used 
uh, ISDS puts into the treaties is that the countries, that their governments, allow into the treaties a special right for foreign investors, uh, which effectively usually means big multinational companies or very wealthy uh, individuals uh, to have special protections, uh, essentially for their property rights uh, at an international level. So it's functionally similar to just putting a new and exceptionally powerful property rights clause into your constitution. Right. And and, those yeah. kinds of clauses, when they're interpreted by people who aren't that sympathetic to the kinds of things that you and I and many of your listeners would care about, mm. protecting the environment and health and so on, just because the, it's just the orientation of those people, um, those property rights clauses can be very dangerous uh, for governments. So when governments take action in a whole range of areas of public interest, because it can create um, potentially massive financial costs for governments that otherwise would not exist uh, under a country's uh, constitution. Right. So that's sort of the broad um, strokes uh, challenge that ISDS creates for making decisions on behalf of, uh, of the public. Uh, it's this uh, potentially massive, uncapped financial liability for governments. There's another aspect I ISDS which I can get into, and it's the lack of a, of a judicial process. But I think that's a bit different from the, the main deterrent it creates for government. Right, and uh, I'm just going to ask you to speak up slightly, Gus, since we're having you call in today, just to to make sure our listeners are hearing you loud and clear. Um, one of the one of the terms I believe you used in one of your articles was that um, it, this can be prohibitive in terms of regulatory innovation. So w- would that, for example, mean that if a, a national government wanted to put in a carbon pricing mechanism, that that could be challenged under sort of potential loss of profits or actual loss of profits for an international corporation? Well, it could certainly be challenged. And the question for the government would be, you know, how how uh, serious is the challenge? What's the risk of losing? And these treaties, they give rights to foreign investors using very broad language. So it's, it's hard to predict how that language is going to be interpreted. And, and the arbitrators who have been interpreting these kinds of provisions, smaller existing treaties, have interpreted these clauses very broadly to uh, favor the foreign investors' uh, point of view. And so um, I think that's, uh, you know, actually, can you bring me back to your question? Before yeah, sure. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I think the, the, the challenge that perhaps we're, we're talking about is that if the Canadian government or other levels of government wanted to execute a policy in the public interest, whether it's about the environment or health or whatever, um, and they they may reconsider uh, executing that policy if they actually think that they're going to be sued. So there could be a chilling effect. Would you right, say? and you mentioned the example of carbon pricing. Right. So let's imagine you have uh, really big established players who want the existing status quo to continue because they make tons of money from it. Let's imagine, say, huge multinational oil companies Mm -hmm. or other resource companies that have a business plan entirely linked to our existing dependence on fossil fuels 
we know we have to transition out of. We have to transition into the green economy. Those established players, some of them are going to, we can predict, are going to fight that. Uh, they are fighting it. And the ISDS mechanisms give them an extraordinarily powerful new tool to fight it because they can bring an international claim against an entire country. Anything that that country does at the federal level, at the provincial level, at the municipal level, if there's big enough money at stake, it'll make sense for the big companies to spend money on the lawyers and attack what the, co- what the co- government is trying to do. In fact, if they get wind of it behind the scenes, of course, they do it behind closed doors first and try to sway government officials uh, you know, by talking to them, their lawyers, their lobbyists. And, and this tool is particularly powerful because the claims can lead to a monetary award against a country that can run into hundreds of millions, or in some cases, we've, we've actually seen awards of billions of dollars. And I don't want to get into all the details of why that's something new, but in Canadian domestic law, there's just no way you can get that kind of monetary penalty against the government when it does things like passing legislation or even making court decisions. Yeah, so this so is opening us up out to that kind of risk of being sued. And I think Canada has the dubious honor of being one of the most sued high-income countries under the current trade agreements that we've signed. So we know that we are actually vulnerable as a nation to this kind of litigation. And if I understand it correctly, the TPP, these cases are actually going to be outside of our judicial system. So as you're saying, you know, held in, in secretive tribunals rather than through the public court system. Is that right? Yeah, and the most important thing there, I think, to understand is imagine that you have a Supreme Court for the world that only protects the property rights of foreigners, which is primarily big multinationals and sort of hundred millionaires. But instead of having judges in the court, you have private lawyers who get paid very well for sitting on tribunals, and they're, they're called arbitrators when they sit on the tribunals, And they don't have the usual protections of independence that judges and courts have. So as a result, for example, they get paid by the appointment. So they appear to have a clear financial interest in having more claims brought. And in this system, it's it's somewhat unique in that only one side can bring claims in the arbitrations, and that's the foreign investors. So you can identify a business interest of the you know, supposed judge in actually encouraging claims and having the claims take a longer amount of time and so on. It would be totally unacceptable from the point of view of judicial independence in any country mm-hmm. that's governed by long-standing conventions of the rule of law and so on. And you've done but, some really some groundbreaking work, I think, to to address um, some of these potential threats or risks to the, the sovereignty of the state, if I can call it that. And it, the work, your body of work on carve-out clauses as it relates to climate change, could you just tell us very, very briefly, how would a carve-out clause on climate change work in, in the multilateral setting? Okay, well, the first point we need to understand is no treaties in any field are anywhere near as powerful as these, these trade and investment treaties. So environmental treaties, human rights treaties, anti-corruption treaties, etc., etc., have nowhere near the enforcement mechanisms and the potency of these foreign 
and that's part of that is developing multilateral agreements that, uh, in an ideal world, would oblige countries to meet certain carbon reduction targets and carbon mitigation and so on. So what happens when a country's commitments in an environmental treaty like that uh, are challenged by a foreign investor under an investment treaty? Because, of course, the investment treaties allow foreign investors to attack things that countries do, including implementing things that they've committed to do in environmental treaties. So what I did is I just wrote a clause with the strongest wording I could possibly come up with with the help of some friends. And uh, the clause would have made very clear that anything countries did to implement their commitments in the climate change agreement could not be challenged using these these very financially risky investment mechanisms of, that would be available to the big oil companies if they wanted to play play hardball and really attack uh, what countries and governments were trying to do to address climate change. And, so that was the idea, was to, mm-hmm. to try to avoid this potential threat that these very generous, unique foreign investor protections pose to important regulatory initiatives that, view are a much higher priority than protecting the value of the assets of uh, foreign investors. Right. So that would that would prevent um, that would prevent a multilateral trade agreement like the the TPP, for example, um, taking precedent over measures that were executed under uh, an international climate change agreement, for example. It wasn't my, my my proposal wasn't even that broad and that ambitious. I was actually just wanted to stop the foreign investor ISDS claim. So it was specific to the ISDS. State-to-state dispute settlement would still be possible under the trade agreements if one, one country thought that another was somehow abusing its, uh, you know, its, its role in the implementing environmental agreement to get some trade advantage. So state-to-state was left in place. It was just taking away this novel and quite radical uh, power that that big companies have to frustrate things that governments uh, need to do. So in a way, you know, when governments are signing these trade agreements with one hand and then climate agreements with the other, um, the, the, you know, there's an inherent or potential conflict there. And I think the European Parliament actually anticipated that and, and drew on your work by passing a resolution in the fall. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it was uh, um, adopted uh, by the European Parliament and added to the, therefore added to the European Union's negotiating position at the Paris um, uh, Convention, uh, but uh, it I, it didn't get put into the ultimate multilateral convention. And to me, that wasn't particularly surprising because I knew it was very strongly worded, and as a result, that the you know the governments, the major governments that unfortunately put the uh, the interests of multinational uh, oil companies uh, at a higher level, evidently, than um, coordinated international action to address uh, the climate change issue. You know that they weren't they weren't going to go for that kind of language, but it was a way to make the point clear uh, how the priorities are being drawn. Uh, and I mean, I'll 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 add to this since I started studying this stuff. When I was a law student in the late 1990s, I was struck then, and I'm just constantly reminded how much the priorities appear to be totally out of whack 
in what governments insist on having in international agreements and where they make the agreements strong and where they make the agreements weak. The protections afforded to multinational companies and very wealthy individuals who qualify as foreign investors are uh, almost incomparable to the the relatively weak mechanisms that are in place in, in almost every other area of international law. And I want to talk about that in, in the time we have left, in terms of what are the implications specifically in the Canadian context? And you alluded to this, I think, a little bit earlier in our conversation. You know, I want to unpack a bit of the, the legality of, of the measures that are in the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement. We've, we've seen, for example, some, some court cases that were mounted by First Nations that have affirmed um, the government's duty to consult First Nations and Aboriginal title. In the Canadian setting, do you see um, precedents that have been set that way eventually or potentially coming in into collision uh, with some of the some of the provisions that are in in trade agreements like the TPP? For example, if if companies can prove that if um, if the duty to consult First Nations doesn't go in their favor and, and the governments take decisions because uh, the duty to consult says a project can't move forward because that's what First Nations have uh, said, for example, could you see that being the basis of a case and the Canadian government being sued? Oh, for sure. could very well be the, the basis for a case. Uh, for example, you could have a, a Canadian court that annuls a permit or a license that's been issued to a resource company because of a failure uh, to meet the requirements of the duty to consult. And that's a constitutional duty. But in international law, a country's constitution is, to put it you know, simply, is not an excuse for avoiding, to avoid your international obligations. So as a result, those court decisions could lead to potentially very large uh, financial awards and penalties levied against Canada as a country because the resource company, if there was enough at stake, they could go to one of these arbitrations and you know, it's hard to predict what the arbitrators would decide. We, you know, every case is different, but there's enough examples of arbitrators being very hawkish in favor of foreign investors and, and really, uh, to my view, even at times just really being very anti-government. Um, it's almost like reading awards written by these really hardcore property rights enthusiasts sort of run amok with the incredible power that they've been granted over the public purse uh, by these treaties. So certainly they, that's a very good example of an area where Canadian constitutional norms and values could very much collide with the international obligations to pr- protect foreign companies uh, and that collision could end up being very costly to Canadian taxpayers. So that really highlights what's at stake here in terms of our constitution and the, f- the fab- fabric of our, our legal framework here in Canada. I'm, I'm going to open this up a little bit for the last few minutes. Um, I have my colleagues Brenna and Darren here in the, in the studio to see if they have any questions or comments for you, Gus. Yeah, I mean, what what comes to mind for me that uh, also hello Gus, I'm I'm Brenna. Hi. <laughs> um, what comes to mind for me is perhaps like not as technical as some of the questions that Emma was just asking you, but the fact that Emma had said, you know, the TPP is going to make it difficult for the government to act in the public interest for fear of being sued. So we think about um, people who are very anti-government, who are like libertarian or I guess small C conservative. 
But really, this – so they would ostensibly support something like the TPP, uh, which is putting the power of corporations over individual choice. So there's just this inherent, like, paradox where individual choices and ability to lobby and influence our governments to make decisions that are favorable to citizens, it's just completely at odds. And another kind of element of that dialogue is that I've done some reading about how the TPP is actually going to result in job losses for the United States and Canada and and other signatories. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around um, how, like, where support for this agreement is coming from. Well, uh, you know, I I try to wrap my head around it, too, because... um, I don't think, I mean, if, if I talk to someone who doesn't make money from these agreements, an ordinary member of the public business person, after about 20 minutes, they're really quite shocked often about what they hear about it and certainly not supportive. So how is it that these extraordinarily complex and technical agreements get drafted? And by the way, the the devil is in the details with these agreements kind of to, to, to the hundredth degree. I mean, the, the devil is really buried in the details of some of these agreements. And it can sometimes take me a few weeks to sort through a complex text to really find, aha, that's where they hid this new problem. So why are these things written this way? And I don't really know, but I think it probably has something to do with the special access that's granted to the negotiations and to the decision-making process to the lawyers and lobbyists, the, the, the kind of legions of lawyers and lobbyists who work on behalf of big multinational companies. And I think uh, also, Because it's also. almost like if you wanted to write a new constitution at the global level for countries that was extraordinarily favorable to the status, the financial position uh, of big multinational companies, um, this is what you would do. Yeah, and I think also just quickly, you know, um, these agreements, perhaps particularly trade agreements, are written and almost have the benefit of being necessarily written in legal language so that they're completely opaque to people who don't read legalese. Because I'm, I'm, I would call myself a climate organizer, and I think even a lot of my friends who are otherwise extremely informed about things like free prior and informed consent um, and, and, and pipeline fights and, and legal cases are just, uh, we're uninformed about how significant the TPP could be if it comes into effect in Canada. That's right, and and I I have the great luxury as an academic to spend years studying this stuff. Um, By the way, most of my colleagues work in the area because it is quite lucrative. (laughs) When you go public on some of the problems, it doesn't necessarily help your your potential career (laughs) as an ISDS arbitrator. But there are more and more specialists who who really just want to be academics in the field. Um, But, yeah, we, um, I mean... The way it works typically is someone like me will go and and say, uh, look, there's a problem with these agreements, and here's what I think about it. You've given me a lot of time to to describe some of the issues, but of course I'm just scratching the surface on this show. But then, uh, you know, the the government or someone else will will put up sort of a lawyer in a suit who sounds good, who will just reassure, reassure everyone that everything's fine and point to some... For example, they like to point to exceptions in these agreements. 
I don't want to take up any more time, but that's a really bad sign if someone's pointing to exceptions in a trade agreement to protect the public interest and the right to regulate. But it takes a long time to explain. So the opaqueness of the treaties helps with selling the treaties because you can't get at the real problems in a credible way in the time you typically have to speak to a public audience because it gets reduced often to, to, to short sound bites and short little snippets of quotes. All right. Well, Darren, uh, the, sorry, Gus, this is Darren jumping back in, the uh, the host. Uh, I'm afraid we are up, again to the, uh, up against the end of our time, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You've you've helped shine some light on some of these, as, as you said, uh, devil details. Uh, and, and as you also said, there is a lot, lot more to know about it. This is just sort of one angle on, on some of the major problems that people should be concerned about. So we really appreciate your time, Gus. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure, and thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Have a great day. Uh, so for our audience, we're going to take another, our second final, in fact, uh, music break. We'll be back. Stefan's uh, in the studio as well. We're going to have a quick wrap-up about some more of the thoughts of the TPP. I also was building up a little bit of vitriol while we were talking uh, here um, in, in a wholehearted agreement, but I didn't, I didn't want to pretend that it was a question for Gus. So we're going to go to the music break. We'll come back. I've got a little venting to do, and then we'll talk a little bit more generally about the TPP. A couple more news items. We got a couple pieces of fun uh, email as well, which I'm going to mention, and Sabina, one of our new volunteers, is going to join us in the bonus show afterwards uh, to do a little bit of a review um, from some of the more basics of some of this stuff about what uh, what some of the what some of the concepts or, or some of the ideas that people may be having trouble with. So, without further ado, Edward, joining us again. What are we going to listen to, buddy? All right, uh, we got "Ain't No Sunshine" by Matt Anderson. Um, I've seen him live, much better live. So I'm not sure not sure how to sound. <laughs> But he is touring across Canada, so... Uh, but we also know better than to play live clips from YouTube, don't we, Edward? Yeah, we do. <laughs> but, uh, we, yeah, we're going to play Because there's no time too. delay. Yeah. And we don't have a bleep button. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partners. You could be listening on Rabble or on the podcast, which if you are, you have a slightly extended show, so stay tuned for that. But if you're not, we're getting down to the last few minutes here. Uh, so I wanted to make a couple quick comments about that interview. I, I didn't think it was fair to make Gus sit on the phone while I pretended that I had questions that were really statements, so we're going to do that really quickly now. <laughs> uh, and also, Stefan here is joining us right for the last Hello. final bit as well and for the bonus show. So maybe Stefan and I will take a quick stab at it, and then, uh, and then we'll open it back up. We've got about the last 10 minutes or so here of the show. Uh, so really quickly, I mean, you know, Gus is, of course, a, uh, a lawyer, and uh, and we've had uh, some other guests. I'm, I'm totally embarrassingly blanking um, Michael Richler, I think, was a previous guest we had. Anyway, uh, another lawyer from, from Australia. I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Uh, uh, Rimmer, Matthew Rimmer, uh, joined us from Australia uh, a little while ago to talk about this. It's very heady stuff, and a lot of the people who know about it are lawyers. And I, I'm, I'm not one of those people that likes to make lawyer jokes. Lawyers are people too. Uh, but they are very technical, and for the same reason, uh, and for a very good and specific reason. And so for the same reason that I think scientists sometimes need uh, a bit of PR help, um, you know, I think everything Gus said was right, but I just want to say it again, but stronger. <laughs> um, anyone that thinks that this deal is not a direct assault on our democracy is not paying attention or is making money off it. How's that for a mic drop, Stephanie? <laughs> the mics are actually attached. You can't drop Yes. It. If there was a way for these mics to drop, it would have dropped. Here, here you go. <laughs> That's my simulated mic drop. It's absolute nonsense. So here's a bunch of reasons that I think it's absolute nonsense. So for one, Get having a lot of fun with this. Mm. Uh, for one, one reason, it's absolute nonsense. Is that well, think about think about it from at the basics. Think about it at the very basics. So as far as this, so let's there, as we said, there's a ton of dis- things to, to to find disagreeable here. Uh, but at its very core, what it's saying is that 
a country's uh, right to pass laws that it sees are fit. So, you know, what we like to casually call here in very technical terms, democracy, uh, is unfit for this duty and that there should be a superseding power. And that power is anybody with enough money to have access to these types of things. So any large company, any very rich person to say, I don't care about your democracy. You're going to cost me money and you don't get to do that. And so some of the things Gus was talking about there was, uh, you know, about making exceptions for this or that. And I think that's great. I think, I think if we could actually have a serious, honest discussion about this in a way uh, where actual facts and evidence could be and a public, actual public airing and a public discourse and really think this through, what does this actually do? I, and then I think that would be brought up. And I, and I think Gus is, is, is sort of taking it in good faith in the sense that if that was the case here was here's this process that I would suggest. But I also think that he's certainly aware that that's probably not what the people who are involved in this are thinking. If profit. So here's the argument, right? Tell me if you've heard this one before. Here's the argument. We should we should let go of some of our local democracy because when the when the planet GDP grows, when these big companies make more money, it trickles down. Remember this sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. It trickles down and we all get richer. Great. So if you could actually make that case, why do you need to force us? Why do you why do you need to take the authority away from us? Is it just that you're too lazy to make that case or is it that you know that that case is false? Because it doesn't. We everybody knows that the more money you have, the easier it is to make more money. Donald Trump has been bankrupt seven times, and his, it's been shown that the amount of money that he has now is actually less than if he had taken the money that his daddy gave him and left it in a very simple savings account. Donald Trump is a terrible businessman, and yet he has billions of dollars and is currently running for president. This is a very screwed up system, and we're about to give even more of this authority away from governments. Citizens anywhere, anyone anywhere should be concerned unless you have at least $100 million or more. You should be really, really upset right now. I think I vented as much as I need. Stefan, go ahead and jump in. Okay. Uh, so this is what really interests me about this entire conversation. Uh, first is first is that it, that there are a few parts of the TPP that are not a part of a of something that already exists. You know, uh, in the, you know the the, the so the, what are we talking about when we talk about the ability for to be for companies to sue states that exists. Um, and 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 so what interests and all these other parts, arguably the one part that actually really the two parts that people should really really be concerned about uh, outside of environment is what it does will do to pharmaceuticals and proper and, and intellectual property. Uh, if there's a part of it that sort of if you want whatever MSF is against something, I feel like the world should be against it because <laughs> MSF just wants to keep people alive. It's a guideline, not a rule. But yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so what interests me so much is uh, NPR Planet Money. Uh, generally, NPR, you know, lefty bastion uh, has it, or is it called Planet Money? And they, when it, the day or after, day or two after it was released, they had a show on this. <clears throat> and listening to that fascinated me. Not because they were like, this is the greatest thing ever, and not because they were like, this is the worst thing ever, because they were like, yeah, it's a pretty standard trade deal. I think I, I think I generally support it. And that was what they had to say. They, they, they spent 20 minutes dissecting it. and Nothing to and, see here. Well, that was so fascinating about it was it, was it really was this sort of, yeah, this just makes sense. It, it, and I'm, having, I'm still struggling to this day to, to sort of combine the, the two sides of this thought. I'm still struggling to this day to sort of understand one side that can be just, yeah, this exists. And the other side being like, no, this could ruin everything. And that that dichotomy is fascinating. Emmy wants to talk. 
Yes, I do. (laughs) I just want to build on what you're saying because I think there are a few important things to really bring to the forefront. One, this doesn't replace existing agreements like NAFTA. It only adds to them. Mm. So, um, for for example, Obama's then like, well, we've put some positive environmental protections in or labor protections. There's a carve-out clause for tobacco. Anything that's in NAFTA still holds. Mm. So this is not anything that could be toted as being an improvement is not an improvement. It just increases the number of corporations under different national banners that can sue Canada. That's what it does. We've just added uh, a 12-party agreement to the pe- like to the folks that can actually sue us. And, you know, as as Darren was saying, this just gives increasingly a- increasing access to big corporations. This is about maintaining the establishment. It's not about encouraging innovation or small entrepreneurs or anything like that we really need to to get to the bottom of things you need to look at who's set to gain what is the structure that is in place promoting in this case well it, it doesn't just not do it it actively fights against it it actively sets the rules against innovation right like it's it's a direct assault on everybody that's not a millionaire or like a hundred millionaire or a multinational corporation. I mean, it's like, so here's another thing, right? So people will say, well, um, let's, you know, what would an excuse be? Well, okay, well, you know, we don't want you passing some silly climate change or let's take climate change out of it. We want you passing some water quality law because that might cost Nestle some money and then they'd have to fire people. Okay. If you think you can make the case that it is, it is net better even for the water quality thing, we'll make so much more money by letting Nestle do whatever they want, and that will be so good for everyone that it will actually be cheaper to let them do it and pay to fix it later, the water thing, than it will be to pass the law. Great. If you think you can make that case, then make that case. Don't take that decision away from us. So, I mean, here's what's really happening here is the reason, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm making a claim here. I don't have evidence. This is an opinion. Hmm. Let, me, let me put that right out in front. This is an opinion. I don't think anyone that's involved in this actually believes that. I think that what actually is the case here is that like we have a whole bunch of uh, recent victories. We have recent pipeline fights. We have a whole bunch of actual seeming like it might actually lead to actual progress on climate change. And these are the rich and powerful people and the rich and powerful companies going, going fine. You outmaneuvered us this one time. So we're going to go and do this other thing to make sure that no matter what you do, we're going to get paid either way. So you go ahead and have your climate agreements. You go ahead and protect your citizens and you're going to pay for it because I'm going to sue you and there's nothing you can do about it. So – like uh, I, I'm I'm gonna at least in mildly disagree in that that makes Please. mostly because <laughs> I, I I don't really think there are that many people out there who are evil. Uh, the way I would characterize what is actually happening is there's a whole bunch of Canadian companies uh, who want to be able to be like, hey, I want to go be able to build, I want to be able to sell my auto parts to Korea uh, as cheaply as possible. Uh, and so they lobby our Canadian government, being like, "Hey, we want to sell auto parts to the to the, uh, the Koreans as cheap, cheap as possible." And then Korea, Korean auto part manufacturers say, "Hey, we want to sell it to Canada as cheap as possible." Uh, and they're the ones who are talking. You know, it's the it's what honestly the, the real conversation here uh, is is localism versus globalism. That's the conversation. But here's sorry, just to jump in for one second. Here's why I don't buy that is because then you, that then you don't keep the deal secret for a couple of years until it's almost ready too late. That is knowledge. That's a that's a plan. That's not an accident. That's a plan. And I, 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 I agree in so, somewhat with the uh, scenario you're providing, Stefan. But I think we, we picked the wrong sector there in terms of our, our auto parts sector. Uh, manufacturing has really, really suffered uh, as a result of these trade agreements. But I agree. I think, I think who stands to gain? Well, um, big pharmaceuticals, so not the generic 
companies, but the big pharma and resource extraction companies. So I think we are looking at the result of a very powerful lobby in this country. Those are those are the sectors that have the funds to add a lot of lo- lobby power, and they have those they have those connections. Um, certainly, there were very uh, clear links to the previous government, and those links were, were made clear through, um, like, the Duffy trial, for example. All right, so we've, we've only got two minutes left, and the two people who have spoken the least, and I just cut Stefan off. So, Stefan, final comment for the on-air, and we'll move this to the off-air, and then we'll see if we can sneak in Brenna for an, for an on-air. Uh, but if you're listening to this anywhere but our own podcast, go find the podcast, because this discussion will continue in the after show. Stefan? Uh, yeah, I, I, guess my, I guess my final thought uh, is... A, a plea to, to to really actually sort of like, like let's have the like I understand to, to sort of try to understand all all sides of this because uh, I think if we're going to win people over to actually you know to agree with us uh, we have to understand the other side like I, I you know like and you have to be able to argue, you can't make a good argument for the TPP you probably don't understand it well enough to make a good argument against it I, and uh, I'm not saying they're all evil I'm saying there's a couple evil people and the rest of them have Stockholm syndrome Brenna. <laughs> I would just kind of implore people um, who, you know, first of all, the deal does not even mention the words climate change. Mm -hmm. So for my environmental organizing friends, learn about the TPP for that reason. And it's been lauded as a 21st century trade agreement, but it doesn't mention climate change. Secondly, for people who are not as concerned about climate change, like look at it from an economic perspective in terms of job losses and economic opportunities being like moved to other countries, as well as you know, a whole host of other individual choices. So that that is why I would encourage people to. <laughs> Fabulous. And to be continued in just a minute on our bonus show, go to greenmajority.ca slash podcast to find out more. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partners on our other podcasts and with Rabble. Thank you so much. Have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. Thank you so much for listening to the regular show. We're now into the bonus show where the heated discussion on the TPP continues. We uh, we think you'll really enjoy it. Just a reminder as well, if you want to and you can support the show, you can do it at patron.com slash greenmajority or just check greenmajority.ca for a link. Enjoy. Welcome to the bonus show. Uh, apparently I have a bonus show voice now. It's a little weirder than my regular voice. Uh, the bonus show. Uh, but we're here. Uh, Sabina, of course, listened to the, the show once again, and she's going to ask us a couple of questions. Okay, so I was listening to the show, and you guys mentioned specifically that big pharma and innovation will actually decrease because of the TPP. And I want to know in layman's terms, how exactly is big pharma going to win, and how are entrepreneurs not uh, successful from this? Uh, yeah, so so in layman's, the the, 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 the the quite most simple argument for that is basically that it extends protect, uh, intellectual property laws, uh, which means that basically if you are a if you've developed a, a drug in the United States uh, and you have a you have a you have a you, you have a the license to sell the drug a per, what's the word I'm looking for here what's the Patent. Patent. No, <laughs> patent. You have a patent. Yeah. Uh, it extends both the length of time you get to keep the patent and also where the patent applies. Uh, so, which means basically is that you can then, instead of creating generic drugs, which of course are the cheapest way to get actual care to actual people, it means that the big pharma gets to keep selling these drugs for way more expensive prices. Uh, like a good example is like everyone knows the weird guy who just became famous last year for raising right. the price of, one, of one drug to like thousands of dollars because he's had the comments for that uh, and then also bought the Wu Tang album. 
<laughs> yeah, sorry, it's thirteen dollars fifty cents to seven hundred twenty eight dollars. Uh, so it's ridiculous. Um, it's things like that, basically. Yeah, it's that is that is that you couldn't then create a generic version of the drug and sell it for cents on the dollar, and that's what happens really when you see. And that, that's why MSF is against us. MSF is stops the borders or medicine sells off South frontier, um, and uh, and they're and by them being against it. Uh, they're against it because it will hurt their efforts to actually keep people alive in other places. That's it, uh, and, and they'll have to spend way, way more money just giving these 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 pharmaceutical companies uh, extra money for for really just just because they extended property laws or intellectual property yeah, laws. Yeah, and all all national pharmacare type programs are dependent on generic. Medicines. That's the bottom line, and we we shouldn't feel too sorry for big pharma in terms of potential loss of profits around you know generics coming onto the market because the generic pharmaceuticals do pay um, to the original patent holder as long as they're producing these things. So they're still gaining. They're still gaining, but it is it is a question of access to medicines. It will impact us here um, potentially in Canada, but countries that will be the most hard hit are the low-income countries that really depend on on these kinds of things. Even if they're not a party to the agreement, mm-hmm. um, you can you can see that there could potentially be a spill-on effect in terms of the availability of uh, products in in the world market. And the scary thing about this is it is a precedent-setting agreement. So even if not all countries in the world are party to this, um, increasingly stringent uh, provisions on intellectual property becomes the new normal, and then that will most certainly impact low-income countries down the road. Um, I'd just like to ask again, so the TPP, as you said, will affect the availability of products in the world market, but yet it's actually masking itself as kind of a globalization instead of like local economy. So doesn't this kind of contradict exactly what the TPP is supposed to represent? Not not exactly, uh, because what's really happening is it's acting. It, it, the big thing is that it's, it's expanding the rights of uh, basically it's making all 12 com- countries seem more like they're the same country. Okay. Uh, and so that so that includes an extension of intellectual property laws among those the, the companies that sign on. But at the same time, it also decreases the tariffs that we might we might face in the other positions. So it's it's sort of it's sort of it's 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 basically making it more they're all more homogeneous, uh, which can do both those things simultaneously. Okay. I, I just want to add one thing to that as well is that it 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 makes the twelve countries seem like the same country only from the point of view of rich companies and rich people. Right. As far as the actual individual citizens, you're still bound by your local boundaries. So essentially it's one set of rules applies to the general public and, and citizens and a completely different set of rules applies to rich people. And those rules protect rich people's rights. Mm-hmm. So So it's the people with power get their power even more protected and people without power now are even more at their mercy. That's the bottom line. So just to clarify, rich people under the auspices of corporations, not individuals cannot use this mechanism. (laughs) Just to be clear, it's the people that have these holdings. These are corporations that can sue Canada, for example. But there is one nuance to that. Not all corporations are created equal. So we aren't aren't quite like all one giant country of of 12 countries when it comes to the uh, investor state dispute 
settlement mechanism, only foreign investors or, or foreign corporations can actually sue the government of Canada. So in a way, this is going to be from a, a litigation perspective and, and gaining from lawsuits. Canadian, Canadian companies are not eligible for the ISDS mechanism. So we are actually disadvantaging our own corporations from that perspective. May I ask, are Canadian companies eligible to sue other companies that are within the trade agreement? They, uh, that signed the, the uh, other companies or other countries? Uh, sorry, other countries. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, everyone can sue everyone. Yeah. It's the American way. Yeah. Right. So just like I just th- this, I, I'm sorry to keep hammering this, but I think this is so unbelievably important. Let's think about it the other way around for a second. Citizens now have a unilateral uh, ability to one directionally only sue multinational corporations for impugning our future welfare. And they can't sue us in reverse, but we can sue them for screwing up our environment, for screwing up our healthcare system, for screwing up all these things. They would scream bloody murder. This would be the biggest communist lefty Bernie Sanders times a thousand. And it's the exact same deal in reverse. That's all you really need to know. That's literally actually, if I could just jump in. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. You know, for the individuals who are opposed to government regulation and a hands-on government, you now have this massive superstructure that, and we, we heard Gus using the words like potent and radical to describe this trade agreement specifically to govern your access to like medicine, to healthcare, your personal well-being. And to, what's interesting about, about this is, like, what's funny about what Darren said is, technically, we can, uh, which I think is, is an important point to make, uh, which is that everything, most of the things we've been saying uh, imply as if that it's no, everything isn't reciprocal. Uh, it sort of take if, 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 if everything we're saying impl- is, comes, is on, built on a basis of one understanding that we're not ever saying, which is quite simply that as a powerful corporation in business, you don't have to actually worry about the opposite happening. Uh, we're, everything we're saying is built on the sort of understanding that you know, but big business doesn't have to worry about being sued by people because they can and do get sued often. It just never ends up being enough money for it to actually impacting them or necessarily solving the problem they actually created. Um, and so all of these things were like, like all of the things that we're saying that that, that the, the increase of power is what it's really doing is it's expanding the ability of large corporations to. Uh, to move around quickly and to sort of play the play 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 the world game a little more off off each other, uh, and 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 how much power that sort of how much power, how much you in that what that does is it, it it further increases the power that rich people have really uh, you know it's not like all these trade agreements everything is reciprocal you know every Canadian company can sue everyone else uh, none of this none of the, none of these sort of conversations are, are are exist in a so whenever anyone's sort of like oh it's all the same you know everyone's doing the same sort of thing. It, everything we're saying comes from an underlying understanding that being rich has its inherent advantages, and what we're doing is expanding the inherent advantages of being rich. Um, um, thank you for that. I'm actually really interested if anybody knows, like, what is the percentage of Canadian companies that will be playing in with the other companies? So what is the percentage that Canada will be, will be playing against all of the other nations that will be signing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone else might have a, a more complete answer, but I think there's there's an inherent flaw in your question, okay. which is when you're talking about multinational companies, they are by definition not Canadian. Now, right. that's in the sort of spirit of the law sort of way. Mm-hmm. In the letter of the law, can, you know, companies get to call themselves Canadian, but they operate as multinationals, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's some legal willingness. So if, you know, if we had a mm-hmm. lawyer here, if Gus was on the phone, he'd be like, well, okay, that's not exactly correct. But in the spirit of what we're talking about, 
you stop being a Canadian company when you become a multinational company. And, and that's not the legal definition, but as far as the spirit of it, it you, that's, there, the, there's an inherent flaw there. Okay. And just to add on to that, what I think is interesting and, and terrifying as well, and we spoke about this on a previous show, is that we have companies that, that appear to be largely Canadian in their holdings, but are actually, through a loophole in NAFTA, registering as U.S. companies and then suing the Canadian government. Um, so this is the this is opening up a potential source of revenue stream for companies um, and and an incentive to change where they're they're registered, so to speak, as corporations. But I think your I think your question is really interesting, and it's something we should look into in terms of um, del- taking a deeper dive into which Canadian companies may potentially benefit. You know, looking at the winners is really really important to understand why there's a lobby to move forward on this. Right, and if the Canadian government is actually not profiting from these Canadian companies or multinational companies. So what is really and truly the incentive of the government to sign this agreement? Uh, the, well, the incentive is that this underlying understanding that freer trade is better. That's it, right? That, that, that's, we've, we've been going on the sort of understanding that freer trade has been better for a very long time. Uh, and this is just another step towards that. You know, when, when, the, when economists are ho-hum about it, they're ho-hum about it because it's like, yeah, this is, what, this is the direction we've been heading since, you know, since forever. Uh, which goes back to the, the thing I mentioned earlier, which I think really we're not going to get to in this show, but we should at some point, is the actual conversation that's being had here is protectionism versus globalism. That's the only thing that, like, and and then and then what we're really saying here is that if we were sort of if we by if we didn't have the TPP, we're more protectionist. We would be able to ensure uh, we would be able to have more control of our own space and uh, all these sort of things. Um, and then we have to understand again. I think you have to understand the sort of what problems that causes as well. Uh, and and there's a which is which creates this whole this whole sort of cascading effect. Uh, and the, you know, protectionism versus globalism has been an argument for hundreds of years, basically since you know, basically since it was a possibility to have a global mindset, really. Um, and we've been moving towards free and freer trade across across platforms since then as well. Uh, and there have been people you know fighting at every single front. Look at the NAFTA fight in 1995, uh, which you know in some ways argued. You can argue that uh, Naomi Klein argues that the environmentalists made NAFTA happen, um, which is a fascinating story in itself. But so this is like so that's the, the the incentive is this is the inherent thing we've been presuming is correct forever, um, or at least since I guess. I don't know, like protectionism versus militarism in a different sub- subset as well is a different conversation. I'm not a history buff, so I'd have to ask some people to find out like what tr- the history of trade is. But at least for the last you know little while, that's the assumption we're running on. Uh, so let's let's go around for final comments now. We're at, we're at about ten minutes, so we'll get uh, everybody. I'll go first, and then I'll be quiet now. But I'm just really pumped up today. So uh, this uh, this is a controversial position, but uh, it's controversial even with lefties and environmentalists. But um, you know, there was a big anti-globalism movement. Of course, we had those famous protests, and there's a whole bunch of movies that have been made about fighting globalization. And and I actually think that was wrong-headed. Um, I think globalization is a good thing, but actual globalization. What we actually have is that companies globalized. And governments didn't. Now, you know, uh, the lunatic on whatever uh, conspiracy theory guy, I can't remember his name. He doesn't deserve to be mentioned anywhere. Who who'd you think? Uh, so there will be me- – Oh, yeah. Uh, Alex Jones, uh, Infowars and all those goofballs. Uh, be like, Agenda 21. Get out of here. Um, 
but here's the thing. So, right. So, so corporations got to globalize and they got to take the advantage of globalized and we should be globalizing because we have global impact and we have global trade and we have a global effect on our climate and we should be globalized. But what this is doing is this is enforcing essentially is that, uh, is that citizens don't get to globalize, right? So why should we be allowing companies to have global influence and play countries off each other? That only works because they're the only ones that get to use that advantage. If we wanted to talk about actual globalism, it would involve global government too. And now you might freak out, is it global government? Oh my God, this conspiracy. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe that's a bad idea, but then you don't get to give it to companies. We can't have an, you're setting up a system by which we, by definition, don't get to have full democracy and those rules are going more and more in against any day. So say, fine, you want to have global trade agreements? Great. We also get global government to make sure that you guys get checked and balanced in regulation. That's my controversial opinion, I know, but I find it really hard to argue for one if you're going to argue against the other. And if you think global government is like, oh my God, a terrible idea, well, then you should probably be against these trade agreements too. Well, thank uh, you so much for that. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to ask specifically, so for example, you were talking about the clause, the climate change clause earlier with um, the guest that was on online. Um, would that actually be some sort of checking point? For example, like if we were to put a clause for the environment or for COP21, would that be a checking point for these uh, large corporations in order to um, actually say like, well, the governments have some some obligations to keep? I want to respond to your question, Sabina, with a, a real-life example um, that's under the trade-related aspects of intellectual property, uh, which is an international – it's called TRIPS Plus. Um, it's an international agreement administered by the WTO. And the provision that I'm speaking about actually, in, in a nutshell, exempts low-income or developing countries from some of the more stringent IP rules that would prevent them from bringing in pharmace generic pharmaceuticals to meet their public health needs. So that's an example of um, an opt-out uh, clause, essentially, in, in the existing uh, international trade framework. Now, there are all, are all kinds of problems around this. It doesn't work perfectly smoothly. I won't go into them now because our time's limited. Um, but it, it indicates that the trade these trade regimes are permeable. And I think that's where the significance of uh, Gus's work on a carve-out clause for climate comes in. As he said, it, it serves a number of purposes. It highlights the need for countries to opt out of provisions that prevent them from putting in domestic policy measures um, to realize climate change objectives. So that's a, a really important thing that it highlights. Now, like his work hasn't actually been fully realized yet, um, but I think it's, it really highlights that. And as he said in, in the discussion today, these priorities are completely out of whack um, and work like this uh, – illuminates that, but it also provides an avenue because it's very unlikely in, in the near future that all these countries that are party to these big multilateral trade agreements are going to just, you know, renege on them or revise them significantly. Um, but it's saying, you know, if you don't want to revise the whole trade agreement, you at least need to give, give consideration to these investor state dispute settlement mechanisms that make you so vulnerable and may prohibit you from putting in, you know, climate change related policy. All right. Uh, well, does anyone have any last you know, last thoughts here, Brenna? Brenna is Brenna has shaken her head. No, you can't see that on the podcast episode. Heard enough of me. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess everyone uh, that I don't really have too many last thoughts. So Sabina, actually, you uh, you sort of has any last thoughts from your perspective? I don't really have any last thoughts. I just wanted to say thank you so much for clarifying the, those things for me. I actually just wanted to ask Brenna one last question. I wanted to ask. <laughs> you can't sorry get about away, that. Brenna. <laughs> 
I know you didn't want to speak, but That's I'm going to okay. ask you one last question. I just wanted to, you were talking earlier about the organization community around climate change. And I just wanted to say, like, what is your view of that community specifically when it comes to the TPP or other international trade agreements? So this is, it's, it's an interesting question because um, when I was in Paris with the Canadian Youth Delegation, I did a Skype in um, to some Toronto 350 folks um, and someone asked me, what are you, go- what is your group doing organizing around the TPP? And I didn't have an answer. And that was a wake up call um, because it's, as I, I was mentioning free prior and informed consent, these, you know, Energy East, Liquid Natural Gas in BC, all of these projects that we're fighting against. It, if the TPP is ratified, what you know? What are those victories even going to mean, essentially? So it's really scary. Uh, but I think you know we we need to start educating ourselves. I think we are fatigued from ten years of organizing against Harper, organizing for the election specifically in October, organizing for the Paris Agreement, um, and. You know, Naomi Klein's uh, Leap Manifesto and and 2016 being proclaimed as kind of a year of mass mobilization. Um, We had the 100% possible march at the end of November. So there has been a lot of organizing, but none of it that I've seen has been TPP specific. And I think that that needs to change. Yes, I completely agree. And thank you for that. Darren, you. All right. No, no, no. I'm just doing uh, the readout here. So we're a little bit long today, but I think it was worth it. Good topic, TPP. So I just want to thank everybody for tuning into the extended show. Thank you so much for Sabina uh, joining us and and hosting our after show and and everybody for joining us as well. Uh, And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you all next week.